If you're a dog owner, safety and welfare for your pet are of the utmost concern. But there are so many so-called experts out there that many of us don't know where to turn to get the expert advice that we need. Welcome to Taming the Wild in Your Dog with noted dog expert and author Brian Bailey. In this program, we give you the tips you need to connect with your best friend with the most practical advice. Now, here's your host, Brian Bailey. Hello, welcome. I'm glad to have you guys here. We are back in Memphis. We were at the beach last week, and that was fun. Kind of looked like a the old beer commercial with your feet propped up, kicking a lime towards the ocean there. (laughs) I was supposed to be a whole lot more productive. I failed. Yeah. I I wasn't at the beach. Don't speak for me. (laughs) I was here very productive. I'm not speaking. (laughs) Well, anyway, guys, welcome here. We've got a lot to cover this week. Really excited about this episode, like we are with most episodes. But this one, this ought to be a little bit of fun here. Uh, we're going to go over an interview that was conducted by Tracy Hotchner with Linda Case, and Kira's going to get us started on that. And then we're going to cover some listener questions. Man, they're starting to pour in, yeah. and these are... They're good questions. They're... Yeah. Okay, all but one. Okay, so, but it's funny. Okay. We have to have a little comic relief. Yeah, it's a comic relief question. <laughs> you'll know it when, when it comes yeah, up. <laughs> you'll know it. But anyway, we should have a little bit of fun with that, and we, we got to include it. Um, so just give you a little heads up on that, but really good questions and really good topics this week. This is what we do here. So Kara, well, tell us about this little we, interview that was conducted. view ourselves as the, the advocates for pet owners. So that means that during the week, we scour the internet for any articles, any interviews, anything like that, that is being pushed out there to pet owners that might have erroneous information in it. And then it's our job to tell you what is BS and what is not BS. And today we have a good one. Yeah. Well, first of all, it's your job, Kara. <laughs> and by the way, this is Kara. And if you're listening for the first time, this is my wife, Kara, and my partner here with Taming the Wild. And we also have in the studio, Joshua Huffmaster. He's our training supervisor here, an incredible trainer. He scours. I'm too busy doing my own interviews that everyone else is scouring me. They're hunting my interviews and doing my own writing, writing my own books and writing my own blogs and my own articles. But tell us about this one, Kara. Well, this one is an interview that Tracy Hotchner did with Linda Case. And they talk about how crates are a bad thing for your dog and also how We should not comfort our dogs when they are feeling stressed or anxious or anything like that. And then the third thing was about vet visits. And we've got a beef with all three, honestly. Yeah, I think the second one was they say that we should comfort our dogs. I'm sorry, I misspoke. Yes. Should not. We, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Sorry. I don't have a beef with the way you said it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Well, the... It was an interview that was conducted over a radio show. Tracy Hotchner, she has a great radio show. And uh, and a couple of years ago, probably about four years ago, 2015. Yeah, it was a while back. Uh, you had she, a great interview with her. Yes, I had two great interviews yeah. with her that covered the my book, Embracing the Wild and Your Dog. So a lot of respect there. And uh, I, I still hold respect even after this interview. It's just that from a from time to time, I, don't, I just don't know what happens to people. I don't think they get caught up in the moment. Or if you're just hurting that bad for an interview, but we I think see- they want to say what's popular. They yeah. want to say what people want yeah. to hear instead of what we do, which is, you know, not as well. That's fun our job. Sometimes. That's yeah. how we deem our job is to make sure we shoot it to you straight. You may not want to. You may not like what you hear, 
but at least it's going to be the truth. And you need and, to hear it. Yeah. And what you're going to do with that is up to you. And now, Linda Case is an author and I, I really respect her as an author. There's a book that she has uh, called, that's titled The Dog. And it's a pretty straightforward uh, canine anatomy and physiology 101 book. Uh, you can refer to it. It's well done, uh, well illustrated. Great job. So I enjoy her as well. And a lot of the things that she talks about in this particular interview, and by the way, we'll post a link to this interview on our website. Just go to TameTheWild.com, select a radio page, and we'll make sure that this link is sitting there for you so you can listen to it. So a lot of things that she said also were very well said in this interview. But there are a few areas that we have illuminated that we feel that we must cover either for clarity's sake or to just make sure that you're not abiding by this information or you're you're falling into it and starting to use it. And so the, the interview basically covered three topics like Kira talked about, crates. The other one is about comforting, frightening dogs. And the last one is vet visits, what happens and how they control dogs to have a, a natural fear of going to the vet. Because a lot of them do. They, they may not have a natural fear, but they suddenly develop a fear after they after visit their a vet first a few visit. times. Yeah. Yep, I owned one for many years, and I, I can definitely speak from a personal experience behind that. Okay, well, in the interview, we're just going to cover a couple of highlighted areas. First of all, Tracy Hotcher, the host, says that the crate is emotionally not an option for dogs. So, of course, I had to pick up on the word emotionally. Okay, where are we, are we talking about? <laughs> yeah, which what are where are we going with right. that? Meaning, I don't want to be in here. I hate you because you put me in here. Uh, I don't like the size of this crate. I was I had my eye on the other one in the store that has the fleece lining in the bottom. I don't know if I get that. And again, we have to be so very very careful about drawing comparisons between human psych psyche and the dog psyche. We just have to. They, whether you like it or not, the dog is not as sophisticated from a cognitive point of view. I think that's a good thing, actually. It is a good thing (laughs) uh, because it means that I always get to feel like I'm one up on them. (laughs) But it's, again, you you have to be careful because what this will do to you is you think that you're putting your two-year-old in that crate or your three-year-old in that crate. You think of those emotions or even yourself. We had a client here recently that, that didn't want to create her dog because she was claustrophobic. Yeah. And that doesn't. uh, So be careful words like that. They, I just don't want it to deter people from making the right choices because there are things far worse than emotionally, not an option far worse than that. We'll get into that. She, she also goes on to say that the crate has no magical properties. No, there's nothing magic about nature. She's pretty straightforward. The crate, if it is the proper crate, meaning something that is more enclosed, something that is darker, the magical quality behind it, if you want to call it that, is the security that it provides. I tell people all the time, wolf dens are underneath the ground unless they're up above. And now with the climate change, I guarantee even in my native Alaska, you'll start seeing subterranean dens. But where the climate is cold and you have a permafrost, many times a den will be made above ground by simply creating what's called a nest, kind of like a a mammalian nest. But anyway, these serve as safety first. This isn't about the weather. They're born in a time of the year in which nature chose to not have to take weather as a factor. 
this den is a secure space. If you're going to be attacked, my young ones, whatever's attacking us will have to crawl down a very tight hole head first. And I, Mama Wolf, am going to take your head off. And why is it important for us to use that wolf as an example? Joshua, dogs are what percentage of wolf still? 99.8%. 99.8%. And Kira, the default mechanism for all behavior is what? Instinct. So again, we own dogs, not little people in fur coats that share 99.8% of their mitochondrial DNA, which means you cannot separate behavior from biology, which means we're dealing with an instinct still left over from the time in which I, at one time, the dog and the wolf were the same creature. So again, there is no magical properties. It's just that the den serves as safety and comfort. My gosh, we have dogs. Yeah. You leave the door open. Where are they? In the crate. Or yeah. if the door is closed, they're going to find some dark space to get under like the coffee table or the dining room table, something like that. Or the bed. Yeah. They choose this. Why do they choose this? Because I'm a den, den dwelling creature. Mm-hmm. My ancestry is den dwelling, not king size bed dwelling. They will do that, but they'll snuggle right up against you or dive underneath the covers. Think about where one of our rats goes in the in the floor of the closet, under all the clothes, back in the corner. That's yeah. where you'll find Dave. Yeah, that's where you'll find one of our Morkies named Dave. Uh, and then Linda goes on to say that if our puppies cry out in kennels, if you put them in a crate, they're going to cry out. Yes, that's true. But she says, where this is where I differ, is you should go let them out. Now, let's go back to our wolf cub. Out in the wild, if a wolf cub is separated from their pack, they die. End of story. So when you get a new pup and you bring it home and you separate it, it's already been separated from its birth pack. So now I got a little bit of a traumatic experience coming into a furless biped type pack. And I'm separated from everyone. No doubt there is stress, but that is not stress. She says that when we don't go and let the puppies out, we don't go to comfort them. That is our assumption that they're choosing to be stressed. They're like and manipulating us. Yes. They're screaming now, but yes, screaming is a signal. If I was with you in the woods care and I fall into a 20 foot hole and I hear your footsteps fading away, I'm probably going to scream. I would think so. I'm going to yell, help, please get me out of this hole. And that help is an auditory signal in which I'm trying to influence your behavior. Come back and let me out. Now, that would be a necessary thing if I'm in a 20-foot hole in the middle of the forest and I have no access to water or food and I would perish in that hole. But our puppies aren't going to perish in that little hole. Mother wolf leaves that den and leaves them in there. So they have some semblance some foggy instinct of being left in crates, and yet Mama Wolf does return. So to let them out, and Linda goes on to say we should let them out frequently. Now, she doesn't bother to mention how frequently, but we should let them out frequently. And the issue with that is it's a signal. So if I scream and Kira comes back and gets me out of that 20-foot hole, what do you think your puppy's going to learn? So I'm stuck. I naturally and instinctively scream. I get that. But now 
What did it do? Did it influence the behavior of the pack that dwells around me? If they come back and let me out, tell you what, next time I'm in this situation again, scream. Mm-hmm. scream because that's what I remember. And that's what happens when stressors come upon us. Our cognition becomes enhanced at that moment. Can I escape from this? What was the, la- uh, the hiding place I used last time? What got me out of this predicament? And therefore, when you don't come back to reinforce, to let the puppy out, they're going to scream louder. Yeah. The, the, they're, this is literally step-by-step instructions on how to, cre- how to train your dog to scream in the crate. I mean, th- th- that's literally what it is. Um, looking at it long term, the stress actually may go away, but the dog just knows how to deal with its stress. The dog may no longer even be stressed in the crate, but it just knows how to deal with its stress or what used to be stressful to it by screaming to get yeah. out. You know, and then she goes on to say that some dogs are crate intolerant. I agree. It depends on how old they are. It depends on if they're dealing with an, an issue of separation. If they had a bad experience. Amen. I had a client whose dog for four years lived in a crate in their den while she went to work. Uh, She parked the crate right by the front window so the dog could see out and have some mental stimulation. But one day, the front door to her house was kicked in and her house was ransacked. From that moment on, the dog would have nothing to do with the crate because the crate triggered the events of the door being kicked in. It became the stimulus that provoked the stressors that caused the dog to immediately go into a very high panic state. Now, through a good canine pharmacotherapy program that we did, uh, three months later, the dog is now going back in his crate again. So I get all of that. Uh, but with young dogs, you haven't been on the planet long enough to encounter your door being kicked in, I would imagine. And it's now a matter of just teaching them, hey, like Mama Wolf, like your own mother, even a breeding bitch, even one, she doesn't stay with her pups. They can't tolerate that. They need a break. They need a mom's day out. Yeah. And they hop right out of that little whelping box and they go somewhere else. But guess what? They return. And those puppies whine and whine for a little bit, but then they're quiet. They go to sleep and mama returns and they learn through their own self-discovery. Mama does return. So just be quiet because yelling your head doesn't Oh, your head off doesn't get you anywhere. Uh, and then the um, both of them agreed that a better option than creating your dog is to tether your dog by your bed or just tether it mm. by your bed. That's now, terrifying. I get tethering. We tether dogs. We tether dogs all the time. But it we're is, watching them. But we're watching them. You tether your dog. First thing that happens, maybe the dog eats the tether. But you're unconscious because you're asleep and you don't realize now that your dog has... 18 inches to 20, 30 inches plus of leather or nylon rope now traveling through its gastrointestinal system. Not a good thing to happen. Again, I owned a vet hospital for many years. I can talk about cutting out a hundred foot rope out of a dog. Mm. And it was very difficult. And eventually the dog did not survive. Also, couldn't the dog get all tangled up and eventually choke itself? Amen. There's so many things that could happen. And lastly, what is the most reactive, Joshua, what's the most reactive tool on the planet? What causes dogs to go into more of a panic state or aggressive state than any tool in the world? A leash, period. A leash. Yeah. Why? Well, because it, it separates anything amount of, of, of any amount of escape, any amount of security. There is no escaping when you're on a leash. So your only option is to fight. Yeah. And when you're in that crate, you can only be attacked from the front. 
if it's the proper crate, right. and we'll get to that next, they're going to enclose crate. There's more comfort in that crate. If I'm tethered, imagine you. I tether you in the middle of a war zone. You got your ankle strapped to a big post. How secure do you feel at that moment? Thank you can be shot from any angle, attacked from any angle. Stressful. Again, so guys, this is a bad, bad advice. Do not tether your dog next to your bed while you're asleep. The the things that could go wrong with that are literally endless. We could do an entire yeah. show on that. Yeah, we, an entire show, and we probably will at some point. <laughs> uh, then I just want to get through this quickly so we can move on to our questions. And the host goes on to talk about covering the crate. Even covering the crate is bad. Now, the only bad part about covering a crate is if you put it over one of these wire crates, and your dog can has access to that cover. Now they're bored. Mm. Give me something to do. Well, next thing you know, your cover will look like one of those children paper snowflakes that they use with scissors. Uh, and again, they can ingest a lot of that. But as far as covering them, she used the example. She compared it with a kid with a dunce cap being put in a corner. Okay, now I'm just having a really hard time here. How do you compare a dog in a crate that is covered? Now, we're not talking about covered all the way, just covered on three sides and opening the front like a natural den. How does that compare to a child? First of all, it's a human wearing a dunce cap being made to sit in a corner. Our 16-year-old son immediately, when I told him that, goes, wow, how can you draw that comparison? He goes, for the child, what the teacher is trying to achieve is emotional humiliation. Bingo. Mm -hmm. There you go. Which means for you to be humiliated, you have to assess some value of yourself, self-assessment. How much am I worth? What do others think yeah, about some, me? A bit of yeah. theory of mine. You, you dogs just don't have that. Yeah. So again, we're, we're giving them wrong, wrong, wrong. They don't suffer from emotional humiliation because you put them in a crate. Oh, good God. And then finally, let's get to the last little part here or second to last part, comforting frightened dogs. Okay. Now here's a reason why I recommend be very careful if you're going to comfort a dog that you know is frightened. One, a touch is a haptic signal. Remember, they don't have language. They don't have theory of mind, Joshua, which means there you can as assume the intentionality of anything that you're about to say simply by watching you, feeling you, whatever. Kara can say, I smell coffee. And I may ask her, would you like some? Just because she announced that she smells coffee, didn't she did not announce that she wants some. But through theory of mind, I can make that assumption. There's also no encoded messages in communication. So now when we, we comfort a dog, we have to assume that they can tell the difference between a touch that means great sit versus a touch that means it's all okay versus a touch that means, hey, you know what? I dig you. You're really cool. Can they do that? They, they don't understand nurturing. Yes. Right? Right. Or reasoning. They, a lot of people, they... They go off of the words that they're saying. It's okay. It's okay. Hey, you're okay. You're okay. The dog is not picking up anything of what those words mean. They're just sounds. And well, I get it. It's hard because especially for women, I think that's just in us to want to nurture and protect and that kind of thing. So it's hard to, to watch a dog go through that and not try to comfort. Oh, I trust me. I told a client there that very thing. While I was stroking her Doberman's head, 
<laughs> she goes, so you mean like that? We're not supposed to do that? Yes, and I'm exactly. like, oh, yep, exactly. Just like that. Do as I say, not as yeah. I do. <laughs> if you love dogs, you're going to find yourself in that. But when you do, I just need you to sit back for a moment and think it through like a scientist. Try to remove your emotions from that situation. Try well, to think of it there, like a scientist. There is a way to tell a dog that it's okay. And it's through allelomimetic behavior, which is the copying effect, the way the dogs mimic the, the person that they perceive as a leader. So if you stay calm and you stay confident in a situation, then the dog perceives you as, okay, well, if they're not perceiving this as a threat, then maybe I'm overreacting a little bit. And obviously, I very much humanize the way the dog perceives that, but you get my point. Yeah, mimicry is one of the number one tools in which young animals learn from older animals. Mimicry, the old monkey see, monkey do. Mm -hmm. It's the absolute truth. Again, when you don't have language, what do you fall back on? visual, touch, smell. If we, we get so distracted by words that we don't pay attention to all those other signals, but they pick up on everything. So if you feel like your dog is frightened, no doubt you feel that yourself. You may not be frightened, but you're anxious mm -hmm. because your dog is frightened. And just that touch alone can be enough for the dog to look back at you and go, oh my gosh. So you're my leader and you're frightened. So imagine being on a ship in a stormy sea and you watch the captain shaking in his boots and saying at the whole time, it's all good. Don't worry about it. Uh, I'm kind of a little bit worried here. And then one last little thing on that, and we'll talk about more of this uh, in the week after next, we're going to have a two-part series on canine pharmacotherapy, but I talk about how when the animal reaches a certain state, when its stressors are so high that it will enter a land in which it is no longer aware of anything but surviving that very moment. So you could be stroking your dog and they don't even feel it. Yeah. I just had a conversation with a prospective client yesterday and she has a 10 pound poodle that goes absolutely ballistic when any human or dog walks past their house. And she said she's tried to give the dog treats. She's tried to calm it down. But she said when she, when that dog gets to that level, there is nothing that she can say or do that will help bring the dog back. And Absolutely not. It's immune. In worst case scenario, the dog is in such a survival state of mind that your touch could actually trigger the dog to turn and, and bite, bite you. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're not thinking who's behind them or beside them at that moment. They're thinking survive. Yeah. Think about if you're sitting there at your house late at night watching a very scary movie. Not at our <laughs> And <house>. then someone <laughs> walks up, <laughs> then someone walks up to you, one of your children, husband, whatever, and touches you and you jump 30 feet in the air doing some sort of Kung Fu move. <laughs> and all of a sudden the person who touched you is gone. You just took them out. It's the same thing. You're absolutely right. When we get to a certain state, our senses are sharper. You're going to feel that touch. You had never felt it before if you're watching some stupid show, but now you feel it because you're watching a scary movie and your cognition is suddenly enhanced. And immediately you're remembering those karate classes you took 20 something years ago because your parents made you take them. Yeah, it all comes back. Um, so again, guys, watch out for that as well. Uh, if you comfort a dog, you do so at your own peril. And unfortunately you do so at the dog's peril. Mm -hmm. Be very careful about that. I would rather treat it with indifference, stand there and say, Hey, do I, you, do I look afraid? Lean on me, lean on me. Remember me, remember who I am. I am the leader here. My will is law.
Again, I, I preach it all the time. There is no leadership distribution. So you don't want to correct them no. when they are afraid and you don't want to comfort them. You want to just be neutral. Yes, okay. for the most part. And we'll cover that in a couple episodes from now, exactly how that gets done. Sometimes you have to control the animal. You have to save them from themselves. Given the dog's state of mind, if they're, if they're capable of you know, accepting signals, then you can give them an alternative behavior of, hey, rather than acting this way, I need you to act this way. Well, park your brain cells somewhere else. Right, right. How about if you just sit right now? Right. Oh, I need to think about sitting versus the person that's approaching me. So again, there's a lot of ways to handle this. We'll go over it. But I am telling you right now, the one thing I don't do is I don't try to physically or from an auditory sense, comfort my dog. I'm going to lead by example through mimicry. Watch how I handle this situation. I will be your protector in that regard. I will protect you from any harm, but I will also control you and I will save you from yourself. All right. So enough of that. And then we finally get into going to the vet. And here's the biggest thing on that. You can listen to it yourself. They are opposed because many vet hospitals nowadays, when you take your dog to your veterinarian, if they need, need to do anything, even to weigh your dog, to do much of anything, they will take your dog out of the room. You know, they had the little weight scales that sit up on top of the exam tables. We had that at our vet hospital. But the other ones are larger. And they will lead your dog away and take it. Well, they advocate that you never leave your dog's side. You are with your dog constantly while it is at the veterinary hospital. And I'm sitting there going, okay, no way. Okay, so we take you into the room in which we're going to spay your dog. That first incision that cuts through the upper tissue and through the fat, then exposes your dog's spleen and its intestines and those fat-covered ovaries. How many dog owners are just going to bagel out on me? Most of them. Yeah. Pass out. You hear a thump on the floor. They're (laughs) gone. And then not to mention that, if you're even doing something routine with the dog, you're trying to remove a, a projectile in the animal, something that's any number of things, you're standing there worried about your dog. And again, if anyone is worried, the one person that is going to affect me the most is who? The owner. Yeah, the owner. You bet. They feed off each other. The dog feeds off the owner. The owner feeds off the dog. And then it just turns into a big mess. Yeah. And not to mention if you have an owner who already possesses a preoccupied attachment style, they're already helicopter parents. And that's more often than not now, wouldn't you say? Yeah, how many but, how many owners do you know that would stop the procedure because they didn't want it to happen because they didn't realize what was what was going to take place? But now that they're there, they're going, oh, no, 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 no. Or how many of like them that. will <laughs> cause the situation to be far worse because they're right. remembering their hysterectomy. Right. They're remembering giving birth to a child. They're remembering all sorts of bad experiences that they had when they were in the hospital. And again, the animal is already aroused when they walk into a vet hospital because why? Number one, I can smell, smell. blood. Yeah. All and right. Fear. They can blood. smell fear too. They can right? smell fear. They can hear fear. They can, it's palpable when you're in there. And then they can smell anal sacs, which means these have been expressed because there's a sudden and involuntary tightening of the sphincter due to, oh, Oh my God. <laughs> Just like you would do if you suddenly became very frightened of something. Uh, so the, you're, as a veterinarian or a vet hospital, you are behind the eight ball from the minute go. I mean, from the minute go, you're behind the eight ball. Um, 
So anyway, I do not recommend that you stay with your dog. And I am glad that many vet hospitals won't even allow that. Mm -hmm. You know what? If you're going to take your dog there, there has to be some level of trust. Mm -hmm. And if you don't trust them, don't take your dog. And if you're not going to take your dog to a vet ever, don't own a dog. Find something you can own that you can allow somebody to do their professional job. Okay, so enough said on that. I don't think you guys want to be with your dog the whole time. It goes to a vet anyway. So again, most reasonable dog owners don't even want to travel there. Uh, And then the last thing on this whole thing, tons and tons and tons of times, you will hear them both say, well, according to research, according to the latest findings. But you know what? None. Zippo, nada, are cited. I get so fed up. With people telling me all the time, well, the latest research, what research? Well, this, no, what, what, who did it? When was it done? Give me the abstract. I'll just take the abstract part of it. The, the title of this is Dog Smart, Evidence-Based Training with the Science Dog. But there's literally none. There's no evidence. None. We have nothing but opinion. And what nothing science are we talking about here? Okay. And if you think what I'm saying is opinion, well, I get to do so because I didn't say Research. The only thing that we stated was absolute fact. 99.8% wolf, the default mechanism for any behavior is instinct. These are fact. It's not Brian's fact. It is a fact. Um, So anyway, I'm always going to be suspicious of anyone who falls back on research, but they can't cite the research. So again, beware. Dog owners, beware. Anytime you read any article, listen to anything, Keep half your brain on reality. Do not, do not be sucked into this thing and just kind of walk into it with a little bit of skepticism and then go with it. And if there is an article that you've read or a, an interview you've listened to that has you questioning something, send it to us. We want to read it. We want to pick it apart and pull out what's good because sometimes there's really good stuff in those and then discard the bad. Amen. Like I said, I have respect for both these people. Yeah. I just don't agree with several points that were made during that interview. And I just want to give their listeners the opportunity to do their own research now or to listen to it and, and just put it out there, just so you know. And what you do with it is really up to you. But also keep in mind, it's up to your dog as well. You know, yeah. Your dog's dog going to be the, the recipient of what you do. Many times, yeah. All right, Kira, we have some questions. Shoot them to me, baby. I have some questions. All right, let me get my glasses on so I can see. Okay, so the first question we have is, why do some dogs suck on items such as pillows and blankets? This is from Enrique. He says he has a four-year-old chihuahua that does that sometimes. Well, number one, number one reason by far is the dog is seeking comfort. It's seeking comfort. It's why children suck on their thumbs or their fingers or their fist or whatever. It's why dogs do the same thing. They just don't have a thumb, so to speak, to suck on, but they need something. When we're back in mama's womb, that's one of the first times that we witnessed through um, ultrasound. Ultrasounds. Uh, Thank you very much for that. And we see young children sucking on their thumbs. In fact, I just got to see one of our employees ultrasound and there we go. The little girl had her thumb in her mouth. Yeah. So that's an instinct. It's a reflex. 
uh, it's part of the survival because when you're born, typically as an animal, you're born not able to see, your hearing is not developed yet. So you're living in a world in which you basically can smell to a degree and feel, and you're operating blind. So you got to have it, this reflex. You, you have, you're already born knowing what to do when you come across one of these faucets. And that's comforting because at that age there, there's very tender first days and weeks and months. That's what it's all about. It's about nourishment, about safety, being next to the thing that you know without ever being told can protect you. So anytime we see dogs that for prolonged periods of times are consistently suck on the edge of pillows, blankets, you name it, that is a bit of a pink sky. Now, when I say pink sky, there's an old saying, red sky in the morning, sailors take warning. Well, this is a pink sky to me, Enrique, something we need to look a little bit deeper into because why does your dog need comforting? Why does it need this? And that means we're dealing with some sort of stressor. And sometimes identifying what that stressor is can be extremely difficult. Very difficult to do. That's why we go through an extensive evaluation, interviews with the clients, you name it. But it does tell me one thing for sure. You need to be comforted. You need to be comforted often. And so unless there's some sort of really frightening real life thing going on, something else is going on. And typically, if this starts to advance to a point where the dog is doing it all the time, and we are definitely suffering from a quality of life issue, then we start to either A, anytime you deal with a situation like this, any sort of mental disorder with an animal, here's your only choices. You can avoid the provocative event or the stimulus, but good luck identifying what is that stimulus in a case like yours, Enrique. Good luck. Or you can intervene. And when you intervene, you need to start off doing it for most dogs with some sort of chemical. Now, it can be as easy as in our previous episodes where we talked about cannabidiol, all the way up to benzodiazepines, you name it, to agonists, to antidepressants. But there has to be something that stimulates the dog's parasympathetic nervous system and, and really tries to calm the animal down, tries to bring that arousal level back down. So again, a couple of things I'd look for. One, is it happening a lot? And what is a lot? Meaning several times per day consistently. And if there's the absence of anything that you can identify as is what you would classify as a valid threat, we have a problem. This is an animal who perceives something that has triggered a stress response. And guys, just so you know, biology 101, homeostasis is your body trying to maintain equilibrium, proper amount of acidity, proper temperature, proper nutrients, so on and so forth. A, a stressor is anything in the outside world that knocks you off of your homeostasis balance. You're out of balance. And what your body does to reestablish homeostasis is the stress response. So again, we definitely have a dog who is off balance and the body's trying to do it. And one of the ways it's doing is through allostasis. And that is where just more systems are activated. Again, we'll go, in, we'll go into more detail on this in a couple episodes down the road from here, but we'll talk more about it. But your dog is acting out to try to calm itself. Any other questions? Uh, yes. And I'd like to mention to Enrique also, if, if you want to reach out to us, 
then we can send you a behavioral assessment form and you can fill it out. This is a really in-depth form and take a look at it and see if there's anything just glaring that, that we see in this form that, that could help you out. So. Okay. All right. So the second question, do dogs have prejudices? Hmm. Okay. Uh, well, probably not like humans, meaning any sort of racism and meaning I have a stereotypical view of you just based upon your race or gender or so on and so forth. Uh, they do have some individual responses to different individuals. Case in point, I've approached dogs that wanted to eat me, but you care, you approach them right after I do and everything's fine. We see this with dogs that are more frightened of men, less frightened of women. Yeah. Actually we have one in training right, right. Now, yeah, right now that is afraid of all the guys but the girls can handle the dog fine. Cooper's hey, what about Krusty? Yeah. Remember, it's supposed to be blonde hair girls is yeah. the only thing that he likes. Well, fortunately, Joshua has blonde hair and it's long. And <laughs> uh, now he has a beard. And I, I don't know if Krusty took that into account. Uh, I don't know how many women he saw with a beard. But that being said, so dogs really don't have prejudices, meaning in the sense that we would have, meaning I don't like this particular race. They're not like that. They operate by every single living mammal that approaches them is an individual case. Every single one of those. And I will also say that very commonly we, when we have people who have these types of dogs that don't like particular types of, of people or whatever the case may be, they think it's because they had a traumatic experience because of that. In most cases, it's because they haven't been exposed to yeah. that. Amen. Yeah, that's it. So Enrique, I, I hope that answers your question. Next. Okay. Oh, gosh. How do we tell the difference between a dog fart and human fart? It's always the dog. <laughs> All right. So that's the comic relief that we we're talking about. It's when the dog says, pull my paw. <laughs> that, I think that's when you when you can tell the difference. Or no humans in our house fart. It's no. always yeah. the dog. It is that's always the like the top, dog. One of the top three reasons of why you have a dog is so you yes. have someone to blame, blame it on. It on. Always. <laughs> Unless it's a really good one, and then I'm kind of taking ownership of that baby. I will say, on a much more serious note, in our house, it's always, oh, that's a dog fart. I know a dog fart when I smell there. So I don't know the science behind it, but I definitely know when it's a dog fart. <laughs> well, if I smelled, if I was able to release some of the things our dogs do, I'm dying. Mm -hmm. I'm just go ahead and yeah. wrap up the radio show because I'm done. Yeah, Captain makes the wallpaper curl. <laughs> yeah. All right. That was our comic relief. Let's get back to being okay. serious. So what advice would you give someone who wants to get over the fear of dogs? Oh, that's a general question because there's depths of fear. There's terrified versus uh, I'm not sure. There's a big difference, but I will say this much, unless you're absolutely terrified of dogs, then we'd probably have to approach this from a really slow, have to desensitize that person to a dog slowly from a distance, so on and so forth, over a long period of time. Some medications may involve, be involved as well. And, and you, know, you always have to question why, if you're that terrified, why? <laughs> Unless you, yeah, You've yeah. learned it from your parents. Are you signing up for the canine corps in the military happens. or something? Why? Mm -hmm. But for those that are less than that, I would just say get one. A small one. 
Well, not necessarily. A medium big, one. <laughs> I met a lot of small, mean dogs, and I met a lot of big, gentle giants. True. I think you'll have to look at several dogs and try and find one that closely resembles you. Uh, but you don't want to get anything that has any sort of aggressive tendencies or anything that has already got a pink sky. Right. Because your own fear, because you have this fear, it's the reason why you're getting it, will then go into the animal. And cause your relationship to be a little bit rocky, a little bit scary for One, both. I, because I've never explored this question before, um, as on the human side, I'm always on the dog side. Would I assume that it would be most beneficial to start out with a puppy? Am I wrong? So you can raise it and you kind of build that trust while it's a puppy. You're not bringing yeah. this adult dog into your home. Um, granted, puppies are a lot of work, so take that into oh, consideration. Yeah. But. At the same time, you you raise it, you you feed it, and and you build that trust with it. So you, that kind of helps with that desensitization process. You don't have a full grown dog in your house all of but a sudden. Yeah. We always say you're rolling the dice when you right, get a puppy. Right. Yeah, the puppy could grow up to to reinforce your reason why you're yeah. afraid of dogs. Right. Um, so it's kind of like one of those which devil's worse, the right. one you know or the one you don't know. Right. But no matter what, I would get one. I would choose the flooding approach over this. This whole sink or swim approach. And I, and by the way, Enrique, I have given this advice before and that's exactly what the recipient did and it worked out great. So get one. Okay. You ready for the questions? next question? Yes. yes. This is from Greta. A question that I have is what is the general consensus on pet insurance and how much coverage and which carrier is the best? There seem to be quite a few options and variants from carrier to carrier. Okay. So I got that question in advance. Thank goodness. Uh, or actually, I don't know if I like you anymore, Greta, or not, because I'm going to tell you why in a second here. So I had to go do my own little research on that. So I just went on to the internet like anyone else, and I typed in pet insurance and a pop pet insurance reviews. So of course, I clicked on that. And there's a 2019 study there, or just basically promulgates who's number one, who's number 10. And so I picked out a few of these just to kind of go through the whole system there. And here's a couple of things I found out that were consistent with all of them. Number one, no one covers pre-existing conditions. So again, here we go. Watch out for that because if they unearth somehow, some way, and so that tells them, oh, this femur head has been sitting outside of the acetabulum for the last two years minimum, well, you get to pay the $2,000 surgery, surgery. bill. Mm -hmm. uh, no pre-existing conditions. None carry the office visit or the vet visit fee. None of them carry routine fees or routine exams or routine, routine care anything, routine care. Main. So now you start getting down to, okay, why bother? Yeah. Okay, now, They don't cover spay or neuter either. They don't cover spay or neuter. And as far as the prices go, they vary greatly. The number one reviewed place was called Healthy Paws. And, and for and I went ahead and plugged in Takani. Takani is our one-year-old Siberian Husky. I did mention they had severe gastrointestinal issues. Uh, so again, those aren't going to be covered, but I went ahead and volunteered it. And his monthly rate was going to be $35.89. Now, with another company, it was going to be $26.34. And then I got down to a company called Nationwide, who's number six, and they offered me choices. $29.17 a month with a couple little things that I'll get out of that. 
then kind of like a good, better, best, then 71.17 a month. But I, I elected the $98.85 per month policy. So I'll call you, let's go ahead and do the math on that real quickly. We're over $1,000 just right there. Nothing's happened. Well, all of these have a $250 deductible. So add that on the top of your premium. So now we're at about $1,300, climbing close to that. And then they gave me some choices uh, that I could pick from that. But on the side in which they cover, this is covered, this is not covered type thing, there's a bunch of little crosses. And so I had to give them a contact to find out what those crosses meant. And they found out, you will know what they meant, meaning these are things that will affect your policy. So there are some things that are already listed that you're good to go no matter what if you choose that $98 a month policy. However, all the other things in the other column, these little tick marks by them, these are things that you won't know about until you complete the application and policy, receive your policy. How can so, you make a decision then if you don't know what it's going to be covered? Yeah. And I did not give a straight, did not get a straight answer on that. And that was mm -hmm. a little bit irritating. All right. And then I went down to another one called True Pinion, and I picked the middle of the road. This time I said, I'm not going high. I'm going middle of the road. And it was 46.22. And it gave you a basic program, same thing, no pre-existing condition, yada, yada, yada. But now you get to pick recovery and complementary care for an additional 538 a month, or at least I did with the Connie, which covered things like acupuncture, homeopathy, uh, hydrotherapy, so on and so forth. And then you can also purchase pet owner assistance for $5 a month. And that's advertising and reward. I don't know what that is. Boarding fees in the event your dog is hospitalized. Okay, I get that. Liability coverage for third-party property damage. Hmm. So in other words, if your dog damaged someone else's property and got hurt as a result of it, covers the property as well. Mm. Hey, I'm in. Yeah. <laughs> I'm in. So I, I went through mine and, and there was also an administrative fee. And by golly, when I saw that, all of a sudden I went and looked at a bunch of other ones and they have they it as it well. Yeah. So you got to pay that one time administration fee. So guys, the, Greta, here's why I don't know if I like you anymore. Because <laughs> number one, the issue I have is that I went on four of these sites and I filled up the filled out the basic questionnaire just to get them to give you any sort of policy at all. Basic, fundamental. And of course, guess what part of the information I had to give? Your email address. Yes. <laughs> and so now guess what's happened? Every day. You're oh, unsubscribing. <laughs> I have unsubscribed from all of these four or five times. Same email, same address. I hit the unsubscribe button. And yet they keep finding a way to get me. <laughs> and I'm going to need an insurance policy before this is all over because I'm going to hang myself and they keep this thing going here. It's amazing. The, you just know this. If you do this thing, holy moly. First of all, be ready to either accept the live chat or not because it will blow up in your face 90 million times. Be ready to accept phone calls. I've already received three phone calls. How they got that number, I have no idea because I did not give that, but yet my phone has rang. And then finally, we go to uh, 50 million emails. So again, but to answer your question, here's what you need to do. 
you need to take in consideration your dog's genetics. Because as you can already hear, what you're really purchasing is a catastrophic type policy. Catastrophic. So if you anticipate any sort of catastrophe, any sort of major, major problem with your dog, meaning you have a dog who is prone to gastrointestinal vulvas, or then maybe you, and suddenly the dog's stomach twists, that can be in a very expensive and life-threatening type surgery and can cost you thousands of dollars. Um, so if you own one of those breeds, maybe so. If you own a breed that is prone to severe hip dysplasia, but watch out, I'm going to warn you, look for the word would be, congenital. Would that be pre-existing condition? And it would be. Well, excluded? if they use the word congenital. Mm. So a lot of times they'll interchange and swap out the words. Now, congenital means you were born with it. Okay. So I guess if your hip went bad because you ran it on a road that has severe drainage to the left and you only ran the dog in one direction, so the left hip went bad, I'm not sure. Or the dog does circles all the time. Like my dog did yes. for many years. He jumped up and spun to the right, jumped up and spun to the right. So six years later, we x-rayed him. He had a bad left hip. So that becomes which one came first, the chicken or the egg? Mm -hmm. Was it his spinning that caused his hip to go bad or did he spin to the right because he had a bad le left hip? Uh, trust me, I guarantee you'll be asked this before they pay out that policy. So for me, overall, I'm going to take three things, uh, three or four things into account. Genetics, number one, any sort of predisposition to an ailment uh, or any sort of physical injury, the age of my dog, I'm going to take the activity level uh, of my animal. Is he a busy animal? Is he not a busy animal? Does she play all the time? Does she not play? And also risk management. Does your dog frequent dog parks? Does it frequent daycare? So on and so forth. And the more of these you have, the more of these you can tick off, I'm probably going to go for it. And I'm probably going to just go for a lower one because I'm, again, I'm a bit of a gambler when it comes to that. Uh, I own the vet hospital, so I get to have the experience of knowing what kind of injuries come in and what don't. And most of them are just are not catastrophic. All right. I think we have time for one more question, and then we're going to wrap it up here. So shoot okay. it to me, Kira. So this one is a little bit longer, but uh, this is from Meg. And she says, I first want to thank you and say that I really appreciate your radio show. As a first-time dog owner, I found myself extremely overwhelmed with the dog I adopted. I felt like I was putting in the effort. I took him to a box store trainer recommended by the rescue, spent hours reading things on the internet and watching videos, trying to pull pieces from different things that I read that seemed reasonable. All of that to say, of course, none of that worked. And I was frustrated and overwhelmed with seeing no obedience improvements in my dog. That completely changed when I went to Taming the Wild and worked with your incredible team. I'm very grateful and feel fortunate to now have what I was looking for, experts that I can trust whose work research is science-based and I'm extremely appreciative of your radio show and all the information you freely share each week. It really means a lot. Thank you. I can't tell you how much that means to us. Yeah. Unbelievable. Thank you, it Meg. Is. So she goes on to say, the first time my dog boarded, he gave himself kennel nose and you might want to explain what kennel nose is. Eh, again, there's a lot of, uh, Descriptions are given to ailments and things like that that happen. Um, but kennel nose is typically when an animal tries to get out of a kennel. And they of rub course, the, like the skin off their yeah, nose? Yeah, they don't have hands, so they're going to try and use their mouth and bite at it and ram it with their nose. And of course, next thing you know, a lot of these dogs have bloody noses. Okay. I dropped off his trazodone and he seemed to do better. But even on trazodone on another stay, the kennel team said he still jumps excessively in the kennel. 
the trazodone is a long story, but his vet prescribed this for him while he was in boarding with the rescue and recommends that he takes it all the time, but with no behavioral management plan. Anyways, by the time I adopted my dog, the foster that he was staying with had stopped his trazodone and I do not give it to him, but we've been managing some anxiety he exhibits during walks with CBD. So, uh, however, now I'm wondering if there are behavioral management tactics that can be used to improve this, or if bringing a crate into the kennel may help, or if the kennel will always be stressful for this dog. And I should work on alternative options when I'm away. The problem is I feel like he is safest and best cared for in a good kennel rather than trusting a stranger to take care of him, even if that means him in a home. But if that is the most appropriate solution, I'll work on it. Well, a couple of things with this and not to go into a lot of detail because Meg, I am going to cover this inside and out over a two episode series again, coming up here very soon. Uh, number one, trazodone, for those of you listening to this, it is an antidepressant. It's more of an agonist antidepressant that targets selective serotonin uh, type inhibition there. It's got a sedative in it. So it makes the, one of the symptoms is the animal becomes drowsy. It has a half-life, unlike antidepressants like fluoxetine and clomipramine. Uh, trazodone can be given every day. It can be given once a day, twice a day. It causes the animal to be droopy, sleepy, a little bit of a sedative. And that's the whole idea behind it is that if your animal is calm, if my heart rate's down and I'm calm, then I won't act out from a behavioral sense and try and panic and get out of the kennel. But there's a reason why it's called pharmacotherapy. There has to be a behavioral plan to work in conjunction because with the medicine, because the medicine should only facilitate the therapy. That's all it's there for. No dog should ever have to be on any sort of psychopharmaceutical medications for life. It's only used to facilitate a behavioral change. So a couple of things I would just suggest here, and again, we'll go into this in more detail, is number one, I would use my trazodone, but you have to determine what is the effective working dosage. Meaning, if you give it to your dog minus the provocative event, meaning you're at home versus the kennel, and you see no effect, none whatsoever, then that is not even going to be high enough to be used under the provocative event. So test out your dosage a few times away from the frightening environment. So what should they be doing in the home environment when there isn't a stressful? What should the dog, how should the dog act? On the trazodone? Yes. The dog would act more lethargic than normal. Okay. In so other words, it'd be one that's like, I just kind of want to go take a nap when normally you're doing the zoomies around my house at this time of the day. So if they see that, they know it's working. Yes. They, they're going to know that we're now at least have a good starting point, but be prepared to adjust it once the dog is under the provocative event. Uh, so I would recommend that you do use it. I learn what that working dosage is and then send that to me and I will guide you from there. As far as the therapy goes, we have to, this is something that has to be done slowly over a period of time. Meaning like I gave the example, the dog does afraid of the crate. We didn't keep the dog in the crate for eight hours. The dog was put in the crate for just a few seconds, brought back out and so on and so forth. And then over a period of time, three months, now the dog could stay in it for eight hours. So that means you would need to visit the boarding place that you take your dog. Let the dog do something fun there, like maybe play or something like that. But anyway, we got to get ready to close here. Uh, Meg, I will definitely reach out to me through my email, Brian with a Y at tamethewild.com. I'll guide you in this a little bit deeper. And guys listening out there, 
we are going to go into big detail in this in a couple of weeks. All right, so real quick before we close, uh, next week we'll be in Asheville, North Carolina, shooting at you live from there. Asheville, North Carolina, in the mountains. Beach one week, mountains the next. Love it. And also, those of you that have not been on our YouTube page, just look it up on our YouTube, Tame the Wild. Hop on there and subscribe to our page because we'll be dumping lots of great videos on there like the show and, and many other things. And look for the Taming the Wild that has the wild in all caps. Yeah. The other one, we got to find a way to get rid of that. Yep. So. Taming the Wild and the wild is in all caps. All right, guys, have a great week and we'll see you next week. We'll be coming at you live from Asheville, North Carolina. Have a good one. <laughs> Thanks for tuning in this week. Please join host Brian Bailey again for another edition of Taming the Wild and Your Dog next Wednesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Your dog's welfare and your life may depend on it. 